I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, we didn't always realize that hormones have as much power as they do. We think that chemicals that have specific targets is no big deal. It's a huge deal. I like to consider hormones your internal Wi-Fi. Next, the first hack wasn't 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. It was in the 1800s. With any new invention, people will always find a way to make a malicious use of it. This is an aspect of human nature. It's not to do with technology. It's to do with the way people are. Then folks over 50 hold a tremendous amount of this country's wealth. The problem for marketers is that they're kind of choosy. One of the great myths out there is that older folks don't like to buy new things. They're not willing to try new things. The bottom line is they actually set a very high bar as to what's worth their trouble. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes a news story captivates the public's attention and won't let go, which is what happened in a case out of Chicago, a case people called the crime of the century. The trial became a media circus, and the wealthy defendants quickly became household names. Indeed, their lawyer, even before he stepped into the courtroom, was already kind of a celebrity. Your Honor, I've been practicing law a good deal longer than I ought to have. Anyhow, for 45, 46 years, during all that time, I've never tried a case where the state's attorney did not say it was the most cold-blooded, inexcusable case ever. The case was nearly 100 years ago, and the lawyer's name was Clarence Darrow. He would become even more famous the next year when he headed to Tennessee to defend a man who had broken the law by teaching students about evolution. But that was all in the future in 1924, when Darrow was hired to defend two teenagers, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, who had killed a young family friend. Darrow, portrayed by the legendary actor Orson Welles in the 1959 movie Compulsion, did not contest the notion that the boys were guilty. He simply argued they should not be put to death. In the case of these immature boys of diseased minds, as plain as day, They say you can only get justice by shedding their last drop of blood. Isn't a lifetime behind prison bars enough for this mad act? The defense's argument in the case, and you heard a reflection of it there in the phrase disease minds, relied heavily on the idea that Leopold and Loeb must have had something wrong with them, physically. Otherwise, why would they have done this terrible thing? These were kids from good families. Indeed, Nathan Leopold had been slated to attend Harvard Law School in the fall. The problem had to be their diseased minds. So to prove his point, Darrow brought in experts. These two doctors studied these boys for days. Randy Hutter Epstein is a doctor and author who has written about the budding obsession in the 1920s with hormones. And imagine that while they were doing all their tests, they x-rayed them, they interviewed them, they brought in this huge machine that looks a little like something that's in my boiler room of my home. It was called a metalometer. And as they were doing all this stuff, there were reporters, as we reporters tend to do, hovering around the outside, trying to peek in the windows, trying to get glimpses. Out of this observation came a major report, which, probably not surprisingly, discovered hormonal problems with both boys. The findings went something like this. One of the boys had a hardened pineal gland, 
We now know that that gland in your brain has to do with your circadian rhythms, you know, sleep and wake. At the time, it was thought that that gland has to do with something about morality and your inhibitions. The other boy, they said, had polyglandular syndrome. Basically, that means he had a lot of things wrong. They went to the judge. This was not a trial by jury. This was the judge sentencing them. And they basically said their hormones made them do it. And the judge said, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't really speak in legal ease, basically said, wow, you know, there is so much going on in endocrinology. This is fascinating. I'm fascinated with research that's unraveling the mysteries of the human brain and mind. This has nothing to do with these kids getting them off this murder trial. Each boy was given a life sentence plus another 99 years in jail. But one of the most striking things about the murder trial of Leopold and Loeb, medically speaking, is that less than a century ago, we knew very, very little about hormones and how they control our bodies and our brains. Insulin had only just been isolated, and the first diabetic patients were starting to be treated. A hundred years ago, no one could imagine buying pregnancy tests in the drugstore because we hadn't figured out how the hormone that's measured in the test actually works. But the excitement around hormones and their power did start to bubble up in the 1920s around the time of the trial. Estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, they were isolated and began to be better understood. But hormones were still largely a mystery. Randy Hutter Epstein, whose recent book is Aroused, the History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything, says that there was a notion at that time that hormones might be a cure-all, a personality corrector. And this was at a time when America was worried about the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, gangsters like Al Capone, criminals like Bonnie and Clyde. And the thinking was maybe hormones were the answer. Maybe they could fix moral failings. Most doctors, most people in the medical establishment were not going on this bandwagon of let's use hormones to fix society. But there was one very popular doctor who was a really good guy in some ways. He was a real doctor that promoted this theory. He was a professor at Columbia University. He did wonderful research on the parathyroids. That's what um, controls calcium in the body. But he became a huge self-promoter. I like to think that Lewis Berman, who had a Park Avenue practice back in the 1920s, if he were alive today, he would probably have his own TV show and a million Twitter followers. Berman thought adjusting hormones could make people more moral, more attractive. They wouldn't have to sleep so much. That, needless to say, didn't quite pan out. But the more we've learned about hormones and about what they really are and what they really do, the more we've learned that Berman was right to pay very close attention to them. A hormone is a chemical secreted from one gland that hits a faraway target. We don't mean far away like Boston to L.A. <laughs> we mean far away like the brain to the testes, mm -hmm. far away from a very teeny tiny microscopic perspective. Mm -hmm. Today, when we're sending emails and connecting to specific people across the globe, we think that chemicals that have specific targets is no big deal. It's a huge deal. I like to consider hormones your internal Wi-Fi. 
Um, I actually don't understand how the internet works or how I send emails, but I do understand <laughs> hormones. I like the analogy. Um, I know that there's routers in my house to help with the Wi-Fi. We have chemicals in our body that work like routers. But think about it. Before the 1900s, everything in the body was thought to go along connections, travel right, along right. the nerves if it right. was a message. Right. When the theory of hormones first came out, the response was, it can't be. Mm -hmm. It can't. I mean, there was no email then, you know, right, the thought right. that something could just go. Right. It was like, there must be tiny nerves you're not seeing. Mm -hmm. Chemicals have to travel along something. Mm -hmm. So um, you write a little bit about how we came to understand hormones in the first place. Uh, one of the experiments, these are crazy experiments because this is stuff going on inside people's bodies. And the only way we really figured it out is we did kind of crazy and somewhat disgusting things. Um, uh, so you talk about this experiment that took place around 1850 in Germany, I think. A guy took testicles of roosters and swapped them with other roosters. No idea you could do that. And he found something kind of remarkable. You want to talk about it? I love this experiment because, yeah, it's a wonderful story. Who doesn't like hearing about <laughs> roosters and testicles in the same story? There you go. But the wonderful thing about this, I always say, you know, the best scientists are not just the ones that answer the question correctly. The greatest scientists know the question to ask. Mm -hmm. So in 1848, this German doctor in his backyard, not a laboratory, asked this great question. Can these glands that secrete this mysterious substance, we had no idea what it was, can they work no matter where they are in the body? Mm -hmm. So he took a bunch of roosters in his backyard. He castrated some, and he saw, as he said, they were not chasing hens anymore. Mm -hmm. They got fat and lazy. That kind of is no big deal because farmers have been doing that for centuries, castrating their cattle and whatnot. But here's what he did. He took a testicle from one of his roosters and implanted it into the belly of another castrated rooster. So picture this if you actually want to picture this. <laughs> Here was this rooster with nothing between its drumsticks and yet a lone testicle floating within the loops of its intestines. Not something you want Quite to have for dinner tonight. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, like don't order the chicken tonight. But what happened was, which was astonishing, that castrated belly testicled rooster became, as he said, the old rooster it used to be. Its comb got redder. It started chasing hens. It became invigorated. So he did one great thing and one not so great thing. He wrote a scientific article. That's the good thing because you should write down what you've done and have it documented. Right. But then he just kind of shoved it in some dusty library or wherever they shoved journals in 1848. And he kind of went on and did other things. Hmm. He basically defined what hormones are, these chemical secretions that can work from anywhere in the body and reach their target. But yet the field of endocrinology just didn't start for another half a century later until British scientists discovered his discovery. 
And it's interesting, you know, you were talking before about how hormones are a little bit like email, like they don't need to travel along a physical pathway. They can just sort of send the message out there and it'll be received by the recipient. And in some sense, I feel like what he was doing was by taking away the normal uh, place where the that hormone was going to go, this hormone that made the roosters want to like chase around the hens and stuff, um, he was really saying, like, no matter where you go, you can always pick up your phone and get your email. Exactly. Right? It's going to reach you where it's supposed to. And you can kind of throw in curveballs and it'll still find you. I mean, we take it for granted now. But think about it. If you're a diabetic and you have to take insulin, you don't have to have that insulin put into your pancreas in order then for the body to know right. where the insulin should go. You just give a shot of insulin, and it knows where to go. All these things we take for granted are really wonderful in terms of when you think about how our bodies work and communicate inside. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Randy Hutter Epstein, a doctor and the author of Aroused, the history of hormones and how they control just about everything. Uh, so when you say just about everything, what do you think they control that maybe people are not aware of? I think they control our behavior in ways that we don't realize. Now, that doesn't mean that we can then control them. That's mm -hmm. always that toss-up, like, do they control us or can we control them? So one of the fascinating things I write about in the book is the, I call it like the I feel full hormone, mm -hmm. and it's leptin. And this is a hormone that rises after you eat so that you feel full and you don't keep eating. Right. The fascinating thing that we've learned, for instance, is people that have a defect in leptin, the way it works or actually are deficient in this hormone, mm -hmm. they're voraciously hungry all the time. Mm -hmm. This isn't because they, they're not... It's not a genetic thing that makes them not burn calories. What it does is it makes them feel compelled to eat. Hmm. So the fascinating thing from the hormone point of view is we're seeing that this is a hormone that controls behavior, not controls just burning calories mm -hmm. or how quickly you put weight on. And is it true on the other side, too, that people who have a lot of leptin get full very fast so they stay thin? No, you know what what we're what we're seeing now, the fascinating thing with this research is one that we realize that your fat cells secrete it. So your fat cells are endocrine glands. They're okay. not sort of these blobs of oil that I always pictured. I always mm -hmm. thought a fat cell was like if you just took a little chunk of fat, like butter and right. put it in your body. No, they're kind of they're endocrine glands too, fascinatingly enough. And no, while there's probably leptin diets and all this stuff available, no, we're not there yet. We cannot just um, control our leptin, and it's not about just this one hormone. It, mm. We know that people that have a defect in it are voraciously hungry all the time. For most of us that don't have this defect, we know that there are many hormones involved in driving us to the refrigerator and not being able to say no when someone offers us dessert. Um, I talked before about uh, what we've learned in the last hundred years uh, about hormones and how that's changed society. Uh, pregnancy tests, which, uh, of course, are now cheap and over the counter. And you've got birth control of, of different sorts. I don't think any of those things, right, were understood. And they are all about people's hormones. 
Absolutely. None of everything you said would be non-existent if we did not understand hormones. Mm -hmm. The wonderful story that I like to write about in terms of the pregnancy test is the fact that one of the crucial hormones that has to do with the pregnancy test, HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, Mm -hmm. was really um, a lot of the landmark studies was done by a woman, Dr. Georgiana Jones, who did this initial study while she was just a medical student. She did show that the placenta, again, we probably thought the placenta wasn't doing that much in those days, that it secretes this crucial hormone. And that is the hormone that skyrockets after pregnancy. And that's what your pregnancy tests look for. And the way the pregnancy test worked in before all this stuff with HCG was you would take urine from a pregnant woman because we knew that pregnant women were secreting whatever this pregnancy hormone was in mm-hmm. their urine. Okay. So woman would pee, you'd take her pee, you'd inject it into a rabbit or a rat, you'd wait 10 days, then you'd cut open your rabbit or your rat, and you'd look at their ovaries if their ovaries of the rabbit or rat on in, on inspection changed in very particular ways, mm. that meant the woman was pregnant. Um, one side note is that I was asking my mother about this because she gave birth to my brother and sister in the 50s. I guess it was before my brother or after. It wasn't any of the pregnancies. She got the note that she was not pregnant, but she owed them $3 for the rabbit. <laughs> Whoa. That, yeah, things have changed, I would say. Um, this is a related but different question. If you watch television commercials now, you get a sense that testosterone or testosterone deficiency is a problem now. I wonder, is that true? Is that is this like a new is this a new thing? I mean, just give me a sense of like what's going on. There's lots of things that men can get to like boost their testosterone. Absolutely. So is it new? No, Um, not surprisingly for. Oh, ever since we started studying hormones, one of the main focuses, what can we do to boost men's libido? What can we do to help men? Hmm. What can we do that's either real or not real? Because we can make a lot of money luring men in to say, this will boost your libido. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm not a big sports watcher, but I did just so I could see all the testosterone commercials. Here's what we know. If you're a guy and you're middle-aged and... You are truly low in testosterone. That means going to a doctor who goes to an accredited lab, takes two blood tests, and both of those verify that you are truly low, which could be about the numbers that they throw around are like 300 nanograms per deciliter, under that, a number under that. If you start taking testosterone, you, it will boost your libido. You will feel, feel more energetic. For men in that middle range, um, which would be, again, like 300 to 900 nanograms per deciliter, going from one normal to a higher normal, no studies have shown that it truly makes a difference in Hmm. terms of libido, in terms of they're looking at aging men, too, who might have trouble with mobility. 
going from a lower normal to a higher normal doesn't show to really make that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me like you don't think there's an epidemic necessarily of, you know, in 2018 of uh, low testosterone sweeping the nation. No, I don't think so. What some doctors think is there's an epidemic. I wouldn't even say I think there's been a epidemic probably the past hundred years of middle aged men thinking that, you know, what what can I get injected or what can I do to boost my libido? Mm -hmm. So maybe I don't know if you call it an epidemic or just a chronic situation. Hmm. But I do think that some doctors are saying that there are some elderly men that probably are low testosterone who aren't getting checked that hmm. could probably feel better if they did get checked for testosterone. So we might be underdiagnosing some people, but this silly test where they say to a man, wow, you're 55. Are you tired at the end of your day of work? That actually is a question on this survey. Hmm. That could be a signal you're low T. I think it could be a signal <laughs> that you put in a good work day. Right. You're a little that tired. You're a human. <laughs> yeah, it could be a signal that you're a human. When you step back from all of this uh, research that you've done on hormones, why do you think it is that many people know so little about them and that we so much connect them with sex and, you know, estrogen and testosterone. And like, as we've been talking about, there's so many things, uh, you know, from diabetes to weight that that have to do with your hormones. Um, But why have hormones been this kind of, I don't know, passed over forgotten area in some ways in the public imagination? I think we tend to focus on these huge bodily changes, you know, girls getting breasts mm-hmm. and boys changing and puberty and all the physical changes. And we grow up hearing, it's your hormones. Don't worry. Your body's changing. I know you feel awful about yourself. It's just your hormones. So we tend then to have these blinders on of what our hormones are. And we also, because of some of the work that's gone into menstruation and pregnancy, we tend to think, oh, it's just a woman's issue. She's in a bad mood, must be her hormones. But, you know, we're all, we all go through these hormonal swings. Testosterone goes up and down during the day. I'm not discounting that women do honestly have, for many women, a few days a month during their menstrual cycle where they may feel really off and angry. I'm discounting that hormonal can also tend to mean, oh, God, she's a stupid woman shouting Mm -hmm. things that she doesn't mean. Nope. Sometimes when I was menopausal or menstrual, if that's a word, I probably was angrier and shouted things. But, yep, I meant them all. You know, it doesn't get us (laughs) – doesn't get women stupider. For the record, hormones do not make women stupider. We might be crankier at times, but we're not stupider. Randy Hutter Epstein is an adjunct professor at Columbia University and a lecturer at Yale University. She's also a doctor and author of Aroused, the history of hormones and how they control just about everything. Randy, thank you so much. This is great. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. I had so much fun speaking with you. In the early 20th century, when the science of hormones was hugely exciting, there were lots of quacks and charlatans who got on the bandwagon. But only one quack invented a goat testicle impotence cure, and cure is in quotes here. He also ran one of the first radio stations in the country and almost became governor of Kansas. We'll have more about him on our website, innovationhub.org. 
if you follow the stock market at all, you've probably at some point slapped your forehead and thought, man, I wish I had seen that coming. For example, it would have been awfully nice to know that the 2008 crash was on its way, or to know that money invested in the market in early 2009, which is when it bottomed out, would nearly quadruple by 2018. But nobody knows how markets are going to swing, right? Well, once, quite a long time ago, a couple of lucky guys knew exactly how markets were going to swing. Their names were Francois and Joseph Blanc. They were brothers, and they had a pretty good thing going, knowing the future before anybody else. What they did, and they were pioneers here, amounted to the very first telecommunications hack. It was in France, 1834. So this is a period where a horse uh, on an open road is the fastest you're going to be able to move anything. And how fast can a horse go? You know, maybe sort of 20, 30 miles an hour for a stretch. Tom Standage is the deputy editor of The Economist, where he has written about this very first hack. He says the Blanc brothers were successful hackers because they figured out a wily way to exploit something totally cutting edge, a new technology, a technology that was revolutionizing France, the telegraph. It meant that messages that had previously taken days to travel from Paris to remote parts of France could be delivered the same day. They could be delivered in you know, less than an hour, in a few minutes in some cases, and that really was a big deal. Standage is the author, most recently, of Writing on the Wall, Social Media, the First 2,000 Years. And he notes that the Blanc brothers weren't the first to try to know what happened in the market before everybody else, but they just might have been the smartest. So there were people using things like messengers and fast coaches and carrier pigeons to try and get that market information more quickly. What the Blanc brothers figured out, though, was that you didn't need to do any of that. And that if you exploited this system that already existed, that was the fastest telecommunication system on Earth at the time, then you could uh, you could use that instead rather than having to faff around with carrier pigeons. When you hear the word telegraph, you probably think, like I do, about Samuel Morse and messages sent by telegraph operators in a series of little beeps. That's an electrical telegraph. This was a mechanical telegraph, which came first. And it put France, at that time, in a league of its own. The French thought this was so cool that they built a national network. And Napoleon, when he took over, was very keen on this. He extended it into the bits of Spain and Italy that he'd uh, snaffled on behalf of France. And so they had this nationwide network. It was reserved for government and primarily military use, but it allowed messages to be sent within France faster than anywhere else. So how did it work? Well, imagine a series of towers built throughout France. They looked a little bit like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, except they weren't leaning. And it wasn't really the towers themselves that mattered. It was what was on top of them, which was a long piece of wood with two shorter pieces dangling on the edges. If you think about the long arm, if you kind of hold your hands up like you're, you know, someone's pointing a gun at you and you're saying, don't shoot. And then imagine you can kind of move your arms and move your arms at the elbow. Um, It turns out there's uh, something like 92 different positions you can make the arms do. Um, And uh, if you've then got somebody with a telescope 10 miles away at the top of another tower, they can see the position that you've set the arms in. And if they've got arms on the top of their tower, they can match their arms to the configuration of your arms. And then someone 10 miles further along from them can see the same thing again. And so this was the first system, practical system, that allowed you to send messages really quickly over long distances. So all of a sudden, these codes made with pieces of wood got messages across France, not at the rate of 30-ish miles an hour, which is how fast horses might go, but at the rate of hundreds of miles an hour. Communication suddenly had become nearly instantaneous. 
and the crafty Francois and Joseph Blanc were on top of it, which, according to Tom Standage, tells us something crucially important about the nature of hacks. Network attacks are as old as networks themselves. This is the first network in history, and it has an attack on it. Um, So it's a reminder that with any new invention, people will always find a way to make a malicious use of it. This is an aspect of human nature. It's not to do with technology. It's to do with the way people are. And I don't think that's something that technology can or should be expected to fix. The greed of the Blanc brothers, mirrored in so many hacks today, resulted in them brilliantly embedding the telegraph with, well, a little bit of code. And they were traders, and they were trading in Bordeaux, uh, in the west of France, a wine region, as what we mainly think of Bordeaux as now. It took about five days for news to get from Paris to Bordeaux. And one of the things that was traded on the exchange of Bordeaux was uh, French government bonds. And the price of French government bonds went up and down every day. And it would take a while for that news to reach Bordeaux because the price was set in Paris. So you had this strange situation where the market in Bordeaux is sort of lagging behind the Paris market. And if you could somehow get the information about which direction the market was moving in to Bordeaux more quickly than anyone else had it, then you would have a big advantage because you'd be able to make sure bets on the direction of the market's movement. So the brothers just needed to send a telegraph message to Bordeaux saying what had happened in the Paris bond market. Except regular citizens like them were not allowed to use this fancy telegraph system. So they bribed a couple of folks who worked in the system to insert, at a particular time of day, a certain symbol, followed by a backspace, basically meaning ignore that symbol. To anyone not in on the scheme, it would seem like a harmless error that was being corrected. But that error told the Blanc brothers whether the Paris bond market had gone up or down. And the scheme would have kept going for a long time, except, as always, human nature and human frailties surfaced. The scam was only uncovered two years later. And the reason it was uncovered was that the operator at the tour end, so the nearer to Paris in the city of Tours, um, fell ill. And in order to keep the scheme going, he revealed all to one of his friends and said, you know, will you take over and sort of cover for me while I'm ill? And uh, I'll cut you in on whatever he was getting. And um, his friend thought this was, uh, you know, not acceptable and, and revealed all to the authorities, at which point the the Blanc brothers were, were hauled up in court. And... Um, But then there was a bit of a problem because there wasn't actually a law that said that abusing a government um, data network uh, was was not allowed because there weren't any laws about government data networks because no one had thought to make any of them. So the Blanc brothers were were actually acquitted in 1837. And at that point, they went off and, um, and started their sort of business empires doing other things. So you say from this story of essentially the first hack of a big telecommunication system like this, we've got sort of two lessons to be learned. Let's talk about the first one, which is avoid complacency. You want to talk about that? Um, So there is this sort of tendency to think that if you haven't noticed anything bad, then there can't be anything bad going on. But in fact, most, if not, well, many, if not most cyber attacks are never detected at all. And it's only when they do things that are really visible, like ransomware attacks or sort of vandalizing websites that that people wake up to it. But that gives you a very inaccurate impression of what's going on, which is that there's an awful lot of things going on inside your network, uh, you know, that you probably don't know about. And you say the second... uh important lesson here. Uh, This is my favorite one, which is that uh, security is like a chain and humans are always the weakest link. Yes. And again, this is something that I think we, this is a lesson that we could, we could remember today. Um, That 
idea of security is like a chain with humans as the weakest link uh, comes from Bruce Schneier, who is a, a great um, cryptographer and security guru. And uh, his point, what he's saying there is that, you know, there is this sort of fetishization of the idea that if you have clever enough technology, you can build a perfectly secure system. But the fact is that however secure you make the system, you still have humans feeding information in at one end and taking it out at the other end. And so if you can subvert those people, then it really doesn't matter how clever the system in the middle is. Do you think we have learned, at least to your mind, things that are really important about how you address those kinds of human weaknesses? Um, so one of the ways that the French Telegraph network was supposedly secured was that only some people had the code books. And if you didn't have a code book, then, you know, nothing bad could happen. But in fact, you had people like the accomplice at Bordeaux who knew what some of the codes were and no longer worked for the company. And you get the same thing today where, for example, makers of voting machines um, in America say, well, we can't show you the code inside the voting machines because if we did, then bad guys would know how to break into it. In fact, the opposite is true. Um, the code inside voting machines is notoriously insecure. We know this because it's been leaked and people then find holes in it. And the way you prove that something is secure is actually to reveal the source code underneath it and let people try and find holes in it. If somebody's listening and they're trying to think, well, you know, what are the parallels here to today? And then they tend to discount the French system because it's made of wood. It seems nothing like our current laptops and, and this incredibly, you know, we were talking about it, all this incredibly sophisticated uh, secrecy, you know, sort of layers of security that we have on top of our networks. What would you say to say, I don't know, I there maybe there's more connection here than you might think despite the wood versus these fancy shiny metal things we all carry around. No, I think that's right, because if you look at the French system, I mean, it looks primitive to us today, but it was the most advanced communication system ever built at the time. It was absolutely, you know, state of the art. And I'm sure that the systems we have today are going to look similarly old fashioned uh, in, you know, in the future. So I think sort of saying to ourselves, well, this is terribly complicated and uses lots of technology, therefore it must be secure. Um, you know, history tells us that what looks impressive and complicated today may not look so impressive in the future. Um, so I think that's uh, that's something we should be aware of, that, you know, yeah. things move on, things get more sophisticated. And, uh, you know, we look at the Enigma machine, you know, that the Germans used in World War Two, and it was cracked. And that was one of the things that, you know, started the computer revolution, the building of the machines that cracked it. That was a very sophisticated machine. But, you know, anyone could go on the Internet today and, and read about, you know, the flaws that it turned out were built into Enigma that allowed it to be broken. And as a, you know, a high school student can look at it and say, oh, okay, I can see how... To, and that was like, you know, a matter of national security and international geopolitics not that long ago. So I think that's what we should remember. Tom Standage is deputy editor of The Economist. He's the author most recently of Writing on the Wall, Social Media, The First 2,000 Years. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll have the original article that Tom Standage wrote about the Blanc brothers on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Money, a lot of people would argue, is power. And there are plenty of groups that we use as shorthand for the people who have money and power. The 1%, people on Wall Street, people in Silicon Valley, people with college degrees... But there's another financial dividing line that we hardly ever talk about, one that will change our lives whether we notice it or not. 
It's the line between older and younger Americans. Now, you might assume that people nearing or in retirement are spending less money than their younger counterparts because they've got to save up. They might not have a steady income anymore. But on average, they spend quite a bit more. The median age in the U.S. is about 38. So how much household wealth do you think is controlled by people who are over 50? 83%. Joseph Coughlin argues that the consumer power of older Americans is shaping the marketplace, whether you're 25 or 75. But few have realized how dramatic the change that's coming may be. And companies, in general, are confused. A few decades ago, the ketchup producer, Heinz, rolled out a product with, they thought, a lot of potential. And it had a catchy name, too, Senior Foods. And what they did is they took the idea that old age was much like being a baby, that you could not chew your food. And in fact, you probably didn't even care what it tasted like. So they came out with jars of food for older adults that tasted as bad, if not worse, than baby food. So pureed food conveniently packaged for you to take home. Not that a lot of people did. Well, needless to say, Senior Foods, uh, shall we say, was an epic fail. They ran very quickly back to what they they did best and continue to do today. Coughlin is the founder of the MIT Age Lab and the author of The Longevity Economy, unlocking the world's fastest growing, most misunderstood market. He says that in some ways, the notion that youth is where it's at, that young people are the audience for movies and TV and gadgets and detergent, that's not wrong, exactly. It's just a few decades out of date. The baby boomers were roughly 75 to 80 million people who said youth, 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 youth. This endless group of people uh, that were consumers. And they taught business for the better part of 60 years or plus that to focus on the 18 to 35 market. And the difficulty is, is that the boomers are now at least 60, if not older. And suddenly now they have not just the numbers, but they also have the money and, frankly, the expectations. And ultimately, people who want to make money will meet those expectations, Coughlin says. But for a country that has never seen this much money concentrated amongst older people, it's going to take a little adjustment. I mean, one of the things that younger people ought to think about is that this is an opportunity. The longevity economy is not just about more older folks. It's about a virtual almost continent rising out of the abyss of consumers that have new wants and needs. The gross domestic product, the equivalent of buying power, would be the third largest economy in the world after the U.S. and China. So if you're 35 and you want to work and you want to find a place that is a burgeoning business for startups or even for big companies, this is a place that you want to look. So it's not just having to run overseas for, shall we say, emerging economies. The emerging economy is right in your backyard. (laughs) So when you say um, it'll be the third largest economy after the U.S. and China, right, you're talking about 50-plus consumer power. It's like a nation within a nation of the the power. Yeah, actually 60-plus in that case. We make it 50, it gets even larger than that. Why is, you know, I, I, I mentioned in the introduction how when you look at like household purchasing power, 83% is with people over 50 years old. Right. Why is it so lopsided? If the median age in the U.S. is 38, yeah. why is it lopsided that way? How'd that shake out? It's largely about accumulation. Over the last 100 years, we've put in new pension plans. We've put in retirement plans. But also people, many people, not enough, 
have been doing savings. And frankly, by about 50, 60 years old, you've bought all the large assets. So now you start to, shall we say, gather more and more money to Mm. be able to buy the things that you like. Mm. But there is the rub. One of the reasons why they have so many assets that they haven't spent money on is that Frankly, companies have not invented things that excite and delight customers. You know, one of the great myths out there is that older folks don't like to buy new things. They're not willing to try new things. The bottom line is they actually set a very high bar as to what's worth their trouble. They've seen so much that they have a higher criteria for what it is that they want to buy. Well, and you always hear that about advertising, too. Like, maybe 19-year-olds don't have money, but they're open to whether they're going to buy Tide or some other detergent, whereas, like, 55-year-olds aren't open to that. And so that's why 19-year-olds, again, though they may have nothing, are worth something because in the long run— they'll choose Tide. It's an unfortunate observation, but I would argue that organizations in general, but business in particular, is lazy. Mm-hmm. And so what they would like to do is to go after that 19-year-old because anything they put in front of the 19-year-old is novel and therefore maybe worth a try at least once. Versus if you go to a 50 or 60-year-old, they've seen how that car is designed before. They've seen whether that phone actually does something valuable for them, not just that it's a prestige item about them. And so they don't want to work that hard. But if they do want to get into that fast-growing market and get the premium dollars, we find that older adults demand more. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of products or companies that you feel like they have been making strides towards understanding what older consumers are really like now, which is not sort of your idea of what an older consumer is like. No, I mean, you you certainly see uh, uh, many of the leisure industry realizing that it's not just about the trip or the stay. It's often about the experience. Can you give me an example of a company or a trip that really gives that sort of added dimension to a trip that maybe we would assume doesn't have it. Yeah, I, I would say that one of the things you see are companies like uh, Viking and the like that really focus on not just the quality of the accommodation, but also the quality of the education along the way, learning about the arts, the books and things like that. And that's for the more affluent, higher end customer overall. And, and that's a cruise company. Do you feel like that's a change in the way that cruises have been in the past? Yeah, we've seen, you know, cruises uh, going from, shall we say, party boat now to experience boat. And okay. I think that that's one of the benefits you do see. But there's also big changes you see in products. I mean, something that I really want people to appreciate is that we don't want to build an old man's car or an old woman's car or house or anything else. Because here's the rub. Older people or an old man will not buy an old man's car, neither will an older woman, because frankly, if you build an old man's car, a younger person will run from it, but so will the older person. Hmm. Because we don't want things that, shall we say, reinforce how old we are or what we think we are. So I'll give you an example. OXO Good Grips, very uh, fine company that builds kitchen uh, uh, hardware and the like. Essentially, they design for the aging population by stealth. They make it easy to use for arthritic hands and very functional. And more importantly, they make it stylish. So one of the things that we're going to see with the longevity economy of older adults, we're going to see products that are easier to use, more personalized, focus on maybe health and well-being and overall experience. And it sounds, I mean, I have certainly seen OXO Good Grips, uh, like Kitchen Tools, advertised. I've never heard them say that they're for arthritic hands. And when you say stealth, I assume it's like we're designing it this way, but we're not putting it out there that 
you should have arthritis uh, in order to buy this. Yeah, because the, the younger consumer will run, but so will the older consumer. Mm-hmm. You know, the other example that we take for granted every day is perhaps being a young person's toy is the, the tablet or, you know, classically the iPad. Right. You know, the beauty of that uh, device is that, frankly, I can take off my glasses and crank up the font, and I'm still cool using the technology, <laughs> but now I can actually read it. But I guess the other thing is is to really don't pull back on the idea that style matters. You know, in the auto industry, the high-tech, high-style, high-priced cars are bought by people well over age 55 and over age 60. And frankly, we could take a, a, a lesson from the eyeglasses industry. You know, that is assistive technology. Uh, glasses are, are made for those of us who can't see very well. And yet, we are now willing to pay several hundred dollars to have some, shall we say, person from Europe's name written on the side and made it look fun and, and have it match with our wardrobe. I should say your blue eyeglasses match your coat. <laughs> <There laughs> so you you're go. not just yeah, you're not just talking about some abstract thing. The dream. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> That's right. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Joseph Coughlin, the author of The Longevity Economy, Unlocking the World's Fastest Growing, Most Misunderstood Market. One of the really interesting points you make is that as people get older, and this is just a demographic thing, there are more and more women. I think by 85, by 85 years right. old, for every 100 women, there are 60 men. Yeah, I'm hoping to make up for a very bad <laughs> high school dating experience. <laughs> so, I mean, when we talk about money getting concentrated amongst older people— in large part, what we're talking about is money getting concentrated amongst older women, because women at any age, I think, already make a lot of decisions about what their household spends money on. I, I think that one of the, the great uh, findings in, in doing the research for the book is that, indeed, the future is female. Mm-hmm. In fact, women over the age of roughly 47, over age 50, are not just the chief consumer officer of their house, But according to the Pew Foundation and others, they're also recognized as being the chief advisor and best friend of many millennials. Mm. And by the way, that same woman is also advising and caring for either her parents. And if her partner doesn't have the oldest adult daughter uh, nearby, guess what? She's likely to have more parents than she had ever planned on Mm. having children. So not only are women living longer. They're the primary caregiver. They're the chief consumer officer of what goes in that house. I'll give you an example. In healthcare alone, she makes 80 cents to 90 cents on the dollar of every decision in healthcare, from buying the pain medication to the antacid to picking the doctor and the health insurance. Even in the, in the car business, she directly influences over 65% of the car purchases. And by the way, if it's a luxury car, that number goes up to 80%. Wow. Let's talk lifestyle for a minute. For about the last 50 years, we have seen the rise, and we've talked a little bit about it here, the rise of retirement villages. Sometimes they're entire cities, uh, Sun City in Arizona, uh, the villages in Florida. And and it's, you know, age-restricted housing. It's sort of fun things to do during the day. People can have parties at night or whatever. Um, do you feel like when you talk about this massive economy, the third largest economy in the world rising up that is 60 plus, right? Is that what the future looks like? Like when I'm 60, am I going to live in that? Not everybody, but is that increasingly the world that we're creating where older people live in this sort of fun world, but but separate from younger people? I, I My answer is, and I'll put a normative judgment, is I hope not. Okay. And, and, and 
one of the things that we miss about business and products and, and service innovation is they, they don't just do things. They actually show us how to live. They give us alternatives of what to do at a certain age. You know, we're, we're guided along uh, the life in terms of what to wear, where to live, what car to drive and everything else. And one of the challenges we have right now is that the retirement village as we have it now, whether it's the villages in Florida or Sun City or, or even Beacon Hill Village here in Boston, these were created based upon the fact that there was nothing else to take up the retirement dollars and the retirement time of a whole new group of people who had time on their hands and money in the 1950s and 60s. And so as a result, in lieu of anything else, that's all we have. And the longevity economy is not just about the numbers and the money and the expectations and, frankly, the education of this group. It's really this is a new opportunity for society to create entirely new things to do in many, many decades of older age, not just a few years. Is there a model here or in other countries that you've seen that is a retirement model for how to live uh, and that's interesting and innovative maybe – but it's not, um, you know, Dell Webb Sun City. Yeah. I, you know, I, I am a fan a bit of, of Beacon Hill Village, which was started uh, in Boston, which was the residents themselves said, hey, look, we don't want to go to assisted living. We don't want to move. Let's put together a co-op of sorts to gather not just the services we need, like trash pickup, uh, transportation, maybe a visit to the doctor, but also theater tickets. Let's have a party once in a while. Let's get together. And this village-to-village movement has not just moved across the United States. It is now around the world. So it's kind of an organic built thing rather than, shall we say, the notion that retirement is about pulling away, retiring away, and being separated from society. Joseph Coughlin is the founder of the MIT Age Lab. He's also the author of The Longevity Economy, Unlocking the World's Fastest Growing, Most Misunderstood Market. Joseph, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for being here. Thank you. A while back, we talked with economist Andrew Scott about how this increase in the number of older folks is going to affect not just the economy, but how we organize each stage of our lives. We'll have a link to that interview on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.